Oh, I mean, you definitely have close calls with things that get your heart rate up, for sure. But to be honest, it's it's not really something that's going through your mind. You're just focused on, you know, the next corner, the process where you're going to break, getting the exit right, and, and you're not thinking about all those things. And it's all happening so fast, you don't really have time to to look too, you know, too wide and, and sort of think about all the what-ifs. You just need to focus on your job. It's exactly, you know, like any other sport, trying to keep your goal at a penalty shootout. You're not looking around and thinking about all the other things. You just need to focus on your process and kicking that ball and where it's going to go. And it's the same thing when you're in, in the bubble in that car. That's, that's really all you're focused on. G'day and welcome back to Real Risk, the adventure podcast. Now, for those who enjoy video podcasts, I've engaged with Podbooth here in Adelaide to produce the show and I'm really excited about how it's going to work. For those who listen in the car or on your daily walk, the audio files, of course, will still be available. My name's Richard Harris, and you might remember me from my involvement in the 2018 Thai Cave Rescue. Well, that adventure has led to many other exciting opportunities, including the chance to chat with like-minded adventurers and risk-takers on this podcast. There's lots of exciting things to announce over the course of the season, and plenty of brilliant, daring, adventurous and thoughtful guests already lined up. There'll be more extreme athletes, more divers, more soldiers, more people who get off on going fast, climbing high or challenging themselves in ways most of us can't even dream of. And all of them will talk to us about why they think the benefits outweigh the dangers, why risk is integral to making us stronger, more resilient and better able to cope with the stresses of daily life. And let's face it, when has that ever been more important? I've been chasing this exceptional athlete for some time and she's proven extremely difficult to pin down. Molly Taylor is an Australian rally driver who is hot property in the world of motorsports. Her passport must be feeling pretty bruised and battered, a bit like her after the thrills and spills during her career. 2021 has been an extraordinary year, rallying in every corner of the globe, from the World Rally Championships in Estonia and Greece to the Extreme E-Series in places like Sardinia, Senegal and Saudi. She's experiencing huge successes, but also taking some big hits in what can be an unforgiving sport. She has literally just finished in yet another type of cross-country race in the Abu Dhabi Desert Challenge. I caught her in a rare moment in Australia to learn about her amazing life in motorsport. Enjoy the chat with Molly Taylor. Molly, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm pretty pleased to finally pin you down. You sound like you've had an extraordinarily busy year and fitting me into your schedule has not been easy. So it's really, really good to have you back home in Australia and to be able to have a chat with you. Yeah, it's fantastic to be back home and it's taken us a while to be able to, as you say, put this together, but I'm really glad we were able to finally make it happen. And after a long time away, it's just nice to be on home soil again and be back home and see the family. Now, are you in Sydney or around Sydney? I'm in Sydney, yes, for this week, and then I'm actually living in Melbourne. So my family's in Sydney, so spending a week with them okay. and then heading back home for one week as well. Well, I was worried that you were going to be racing off to Monza. I think the last round of the WRC is in Monza this weekend, isn't it? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, so I won't be there, unfortunately, but we've got some oh, really, really busy December and January plans. So there'll be plenty of racing action still happening. Good, good to hear. Well, I've been following your year on uh, KO and other uh, online streaming services, watching what you've you've been up to, and you've certainly been having an exciting time. But just to those who aren't familiar with you or or rally so much, I'm just going to run through a, a couple of highlights just to 
give people an idea of what a what sort of legend we're we're talking to today because uh, it is pretty impressive your your resume and correct me if I'm wrong but it looks like the first big moment for you was winning uh, your class in the New South Wales Rally Championship in uh, 2006 would that be the the big kickoff a long long time ago <laughs> it's, uh, yeah I've been doing it for a while but yeah I think so that's where it all started for me. Uh, just doing our, our local championships and uh yeah really the, i suppose from there you get a bit of a taste for it and a taste for the competition and and uh yeah enjoy trying to win and keep trying to do that that was just the start the start of your success because it wasn't long before you were winning stages and and classes in the Australian Rally Championship and then in 2015 you became the first woman to win a stage and then the next year the outright winner of the Australian rally championship the youngest person and the first woman to to do both those things so that i guess is when things went a bit off the scale i would imagine in terms of uh, people seeking you out and and you coming to other people's attention yeah i think uh, for me 2016 was the the first year with subaru australia so my first time doing it professionally uh, with you know rather than trying to find all the sponsors and supporters and, you know, building the car in your garage at home and that sort of thing to be able to do it actually as a profession in that first year. So that was a big step for me. And then to be able to win the championship as well was a pretty, uh, yeah, good way to to finish off that that season and then, can, you know, continue on with Subaru. But that was a real uh, pivotal point, I think, in my career to be able to take it from something that, um, you know, was still still at a high level and still with a lot of sponsors and partners and everyone making it happen, but to t- take it from you know, a hobby or what you're working during the day to fund on the weekends to actually have it as as a job is, is a big, I guess, a change uh, mentally and, um, you know, in every way you go about it. Now, I like to take the moment at this, uh, the opportunity at this sort of moment to point out, you know, my own <laughs> skill set in the motor racing arena Brilliant. because uh, I thought you'd be sitting in a room full of trophies and things, but so I got my biggest one that I've got. <laughs> so my mum's sewing machine in the back. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, so this is the Track Time Motorsport 2020 Rookies Series third place trophy which is the pinnacle of my motorsport career so far but you know i'm just on <laughs> the, one that looks like that i'm just on the learning curve so but uh, i imagine you must have quite a few of these little little trinkets by now yes yeah always trying to add to the collection it's never enough though that's what it's all about <laughs> is is the uh, is the bling so take us back to the start molly when i mean you've come from two generations previously of of rally and motorsport uh, people in the family tell us tell us about that and where it all kicked off yeah, so I guess it started with my my grandfather. He started rallying and my mum started co-driving for him when she was 18 and he was fast, but he used to crash a lot. <laughs> and, and my mum, yeah, she took to it uh, straight from that moment and then progressed her career and did it professionally um, up until recently, really, uh, and has won four Australian titles as a co-driver with the Toyota factory team. So for me growing up, um, my dad also used to rally a lot and, and that's how my parents met. My dad used to rally a XYGT Falcon among many other cars and, um, yeah, was was quite a spectacle in the forest with that big car. So, yeah, that, that was my upbringing, I suppose, being surrounded by it. And it was my mum's day job was to go rallying. So uh, probably a unique perspective growing up, uh, having that perception of what your parents do for a living and thinking that's completely normal and not realising how unique she was in, in that uh, field. So... From there, I I always followed motorsport, but it wasn't until I got my license for the road that I actually drove a rally car for the first time. And that was really not not to pursue a career, but just to do it as a driver training exercise. My dad wanted us to have good car control, be competent with manual and all those sort of things. 
just to be a safer driver on the road. So that's how it started. And then I had a drive of the car and I realised why my family was so in love with it and why they pursued so much of their time in, in the sport and, and yeah, started there. So it wasn't, um, I never did go-karting or any of those things. Uh, when I was younger, I wanted to be an Olympian uh, horse rider. So I don't know where that came from, but that was just randomly the passion I picked up when I was younger, not motorsport. So I was a bit of a, a late bloomer and uh, yeah, got the bug from there and um, pursued it ever since. Did you grow up in a rural environment or in Sydney? Or We grew up in Sydney and when I was just just before high school, we, we moved out to like semi-rural, so small acreage, nothing with a we had some paddocks, but nothing with an actual track or anything, just, you know, paddocks with horses and, and that sort of thing. I was thinking, yeah, I was thinking about the horses. I guess, you know, most country kids grow up driving around the paddocks and they sort of have that edge. And I spoke to David Brabham uh, in one of my interviews who who had that experience, you know, living under the uh, the shadow of his father, Jack Brabham, but he, he they grew up on a farm and he just re- describes going sideways through, through gates in his ute and, uh, you know, just came completely naturally to be driving like that around the property and then out on the, the country roads. And I was lucky enough whilst I was a, a city boy to, to have that experience as a kid to go out to farms and learn to drive in paddocks and things. So it certainly gives you an edge and uh, I feel a bit sad for kids who don't don't get to do that at a young age let alone don't ever get to drive a manual car which i am highly disapproving of and made sure my daughter and, and my sons uh, could drive manual cars so they could you know get themselves out of strife if their their friends can't uh, can't drive them home yeah certainly i mean learning that car control is is fundamental to not just motorsport but just being a competent driver um so that was yeah very much part of our upbringing to make sure we were competent drivers on the road it just never was really an intention to to convert that to uh, to the competition side. Did you meet your grandfather? Did you know him? Did, yes. Is he still alive? Yeah, yeah. He was a um, he used to ring me up. He's uh, he's unfortunately passed away now, but he used to ring me up when I was overseas competing and and uh, ring up and say, "I told you not to use that brake. All it does is slow you down." Which <laughs> um, <laughs> I think was his philosophy when he went rallying, and I don't think he finished many rallies due to that philosophy. So I would always laugh and. Go, yeah, yeah, no problem. Well, is there a little I'll, bit of a genetic I'll stay thing? Off the break. <laughs> is there a little genetic thing going on there, Molly? Because I noticed from uh, stalking you on YouTube and so forth, uh, you are very fast and have done very well, but you are also not immune to a few uh, few good crashes along the way. Yeah, look, I think that's just the nature of any sport that you do or anything that you do. You never, you know, kick the the ball in the goal every time or shoot the hoop perfectly every time in motorsport just the the consequence of getting it wrong is just so much more dramatic because you're trying to drive on that that fine line and um you know i think it's many uh, famous drivers over the years have quoted you know if you don't crash you're not going fast enough because you're not close enough to the limit so it's obviously something we don't want to do and we try to minimize but uh, it's very much you know a part of the sport getting it wrong learning from it and, and trying to move on and be better and, and not make the same mistakes again but uh, yeah there's always um always a few battle scars well, having done now a couple of years of uh, initially track days and now some circuit racing in historic touring cars, I you know I sort of understand that you do need to find the limit. But of course, on a circuit, it's pretty forgiving. You just you know you suddenly you're on the bitumen. Next minute, you're in the dirt. But in rally, you just can't really afford to find those limits in many respects. And that's why I think I would not have the the courage and certainly not the skill to do rally. Although I hugely admire you know people like yourself who have that car control, but it's so close to the limit so much of the time. And there's one accident, uh, was it Ballarat or Estonia, when you hit that bale in front of the tree? I mean, you come to a very sudden stop there. 
and how you guys jumped out of that car and, and walked away. What We're digressing and jumping around, but what, what does it feel like to crash the car so hard? Uh, and then, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, not not great. There was quite a few Gs in, in that one. You know, I think, yeah, as you say, you're, you, it's not like a circuit where you have the runoff and, and all those parameters built into the track. We're driving down a forest road next to trees and trying to drive as fast as we can and try to manage that that limit. But obviously, if you, you're keeping too much in reserve, then you're going to be slow and, and the opposite. You'll also be slow because you'll be stopped. So, yeah, I mean, I think in those moments it's, you know, you're trying so hard to always look for the way out of something, look for where you want to go and, and all those sort of things. And then I think for me it's just it's just the overwhelming disappointment when something like that happens because you know the ramifications, you know the consequences, you know how much resource and how much of a team behind you are putting into to getting you to that point and the pressure to perform and it's just overwhelming disappointment and you and you just, yeah, it's, it's a not necessarily fear of of the crash itself it's just the the frustration that it happened you know you guys only have one car i presume for the season uh, most of the time and uh, maybe backup motors and gearboxes and things but uh, a crash like that's a season ending event is it for you uh look it depends the cars are incredibly strong um, and if the roll cage itself is fine it's amazing pretty much our team can rebuild most things in the service park so um, be surprised with what you can repair and continue on. Um, certainly it, it can be fixed for the next event. But, yeah, the, the plan is to always try and stay in the rally. So there's, you know, the, the guys can do a lot of a lot of magic in that service park to keep us going. Um, not always, but, but a lot of the time we can uh, work out something. Let's just have a bit of a think about the cars and how they've changed. You mentioned the XY Falcon. Of course, they're in the historic touring cars racing on the circuit, and I'm used to them thundering past with the V8s. Uh, thundering past my right ear while I'm in my little mini down the straight, which is a pretty frequent occurrence. So, but on the on the gravel, uh, they just must have been terrifying to drive. <laughs> yeah, I think he was a crowd favourite because the car is just so big uh, and loud, and and was just sideways everywhere with rooster tails coming up the back, and you can see old videos. and And I've been at events where people still have these memories like it was yesterday. Uh, I think they used to all line up and kind of bow to dad as he drove through. And he would obviously always put on a show and chuck it a bit more sideways. And, and that's why he did it. He just, he loved the the spectacle and the thrill of driving a car like that. It wasn't the fastest, but it was a lot of fun. And, and I think the crowds used to hang around just to watch that car go through. Actually, the Mini would have been quite competitive against the XY, I suspect, out in the forest. Yeah, I mean, a lot more efficient, definitely. Yeah. So now it's all changed from those big rear-wheel drive, powerful cars through to some front-wheel drive cars and now quite small all-wheel drive cars. What's that driving? I haven't, I've never been in um, an all-wheel drive car in anger. What, what's that driving experience like compared to the different, I think you had a Gemini early on, a rear-wheel drive, and then probably front-wheel yes. drive cars. What's what's changed in terms of how that feels and yeah, I mean, rear-wheel drive cars are a lot of fun uh, because you're sliding around a lot more from the rear, uh, but they're not as efficient and not as fast. So front-wheel drive, again, is is more efficient. You can carry more speed. You can get on the power earlier. Uh, and then all-wheel drive, again, you just have a lot more grip. So they're definitely, you know, especially when you're talking about driving on a, a loose surface, it's all about how much traction you can keep. So that's where all-wheel drives really um, have a massive advantage. 
So tell us a bit about the modern cars that we see in World Rally class and you know, tell us about some of the features of those. Yeah, I mean, the regulations are actually just changing. So from next year, the World Rally cars will actually be a hybrid. Mm. So that's going to be um, really fascinating to see. And there's a lot of uh, work that's being done in how these hybrids will work and you'll get you know extra boosts of power for a certain amount of times at certain points and you can kind of work a strategy of how you implement that extra power. So but yeah, generally at the moment, they're relatively, it's like small engine, four cylinder turbocharged with a lot of aero, a lot of uh, suspension development. So they have a lot of suspension travel, massive brakes and the, the speed and the grip that these cars have is just, just unreal. And yeah, I think it's going to be really exciting now into the future seeing how we can build the, the hybrid technology and the electric technology. And um, as the, the automotive landscape changes, how motorsport's changing with that too. Well, we'll talk a bit in a minute about how you've already got the edge from driving uh, this year in the Extreme E series in these monstrous electric things that look like remote-controlled cars from Land of the Giants <laughs> is how I would describe them, but they look like a lot of fun. But let's go back to a bit earlier. So when you started driving a little bit at your dad's rally school, got the got the, the passion for it, and then who sort of pushed you in the direction of getting a car organised and, and having your first go? Do you remember those first couple of events and what that looked like? Yeah, I think, I mean, my first event was actually, I was still at boarding school in New South Wales and the president of the local car club, who was uh, the had previous uh, state champion, you know, a, a rally friend, and he signed me out of boarding school and took me to this basically big skid pan that they had in, in Armadale for training the uh, fireys and, and that sort of thing. And they set up a motor carter there and he let me borrow his 1970-something Honda Civic and, and do a motorcana, which is basically just, you know, first and second gear and driving in different ways around witches' hats. Um, so that was, yeah, my first competitive experience and and just had such a ball. And then from there, you know, my parents being incredibly supportive, so they definitely didn't push me into it at all, but they could see that there was some passion there and helped, helped me out with uh, the Holden Gemini, which was a very, uh, very much entry level. I think it had about 60 horsepower and and a great way to start, and then sold my horse to um, to yeah, keep going basically. My sister had a Holden Gemini, and when I was uh, sixteen <laughs> and got my license, I, I borrowed it and uh, remembered remember to try and do a big burnout in it and completely uh, uh, trash the I'm clutch. I'm not sure from... they do big burnouts. <laughs> no, they can't. That's what I found. So my memory of the Gemini was me destroying the clutch and uh, having a lot of strife <laughs> yeah. from my older sister. But um, what? So you're about sixteen or seventeen then, I guess. Yeah, it was about about that age. Yeah, just finishing up high school and and yeah, getting into motorsport. So, at what point did you think I can do this for a living? I mean, I guess that's that's always the the dream to do it as your job. But I think it was probably yeah, not until I when I was in uh, when I went over to the UK and and lived over there and started competing and and had a few opportunities over there. And as I sort of progressed, yeah, you start to see possibilities to do that but it's it's never guaranteed and it's just you need to be in the right place at the right time and have had the right performance uh, as well and so many things need to align so it was always the dream but I don't think it's it's not necessarily like another sport where you know if you reach a threshold if you can run 100 meters at a certain pace then you uh you know going to be on the team or things like that motorsport you need to combine so many more elements that really it's yeah it's never guaranteed no matter how much you want it and that trip to Britain sounds like it was pretty productive. I think you got a scholarship to the FIA's World Rally Championship. Yeah, so I, I moved over to the um, after I finished school and then had a year in Australia and then moved 
to the UK and competed in the British Championship for two years in some single single one make uh, categories um, and through being over there got the opportunity to to try out uh, for a selection for the, it was called the Pirelli Star Driver Program and that was essentially, as you say, a scholarship into what was effectively the junior championship in the World Rally Series, which was something, you know, with my resources and budget was unattainable, but um, through this scholarship uh, made it possible. So that was a, a massive turning point, winning one of the places in that uh, selection. And what does that look like? Do they give you a, a car and a team to support you for some races or a, a period of time? Yeah, exactly. So it's, it was a one-mate series. So it was all with Ford Fiestas run by M-Sport, the, the factory, the Ford team over in England. And uh, so essentially they would build, transport the cars to the events and you uh, yeah, turned up with your helmet and went as hard as you can. Oh, so it's already starting to feel like a bit of a rock star at that point, I imagine. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> that, that was a pretty uh, pretty cool experience to, yeah. It's, turn up at a, a world championship event for the first time was amazing. It's only downhill for a while from there, I imagine, when you've got to you know, <laughs> get back on the tools yourself, looking after your own cars from you know intermittently thereafter, I suppose, at different times. Yeah, I mean, I think rallying always keeps you grounded because it's, you know, it's not a glamorous sport and there's definitely perks and things you love about it, but a lot of the time you're in the dirt trying to fix stuff and um, it'll quickly uh, bring you back down to earth. So I don't think um, you can be too aloof when you're in rallying. Tell us about the relationship with the co-driver. They don't call them navigators anymore. They, they The word co-driver seems to be quite carefully used and I, and I imagine part of that is to give them the credit they deserve for what is a very skilled role. But I cannot think of anything more frightening than sitting not behind the steering wheel uh, of a rally car. I mean, I have huge respect for those people. Yeah, we often say they're really the crazy ones because, you know, at least we have a wheel and are in some sort of control of our own destiny, whereas they, you know, they've got no controls on their side. So it definitely takes a unique type of person. But as you said, it's a really unique and, and kind of hard to describe the total skill that's involved in a, a co-driver, but they really are driving the car with you and they have to be almost in your head uh, and giving you the right information at exactly the right time. And, and right, you know, if you're on this this flow, if you're on a circuit driving around a track and you're in this flow, the co-driver needs to be on a rally stage in that with you. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, that relationship is very, very important and that understanding and the cohesion between. So it's, yeah, it's really a whole other element. The language that they speak is unintelligible to anyone except even <laughs> even the driver themselves because I think sometimes you have your own kind of code between the two of you, don't you? It's, it's not a universal language. That's correct. A lot of drivers use the same base or system, but then it is really what the driver interprets that road to be. So you know, everyone perceives everything with their own perception. So you know, for me, if I use one to six, my one to six might not be exactly someone else's. So it's very much my pace notes are unique to me just as anyone else's pace notes are unique to them. So it's not even something you really can, at, at the top level when you're trying to really maximise all those those tiny edges and, and commit to the pace notes 100%, it's very much a individual thing. So you don't want to change co-drivers too often. It would uh, make it difficult to relearn the language. Yeah, it definitely makes it more difficult and more so because you need to learn the way you both work and, and the rhythm because every driver might want, some drivers might want the, the pace notes a little bit early and they can store that in their memory for a bit longer. Other drivers might want it a little bit later and so they're not thinking too far ahead. And and so really that that whole relationship, um, I mean, it's possible I've changed co-drivers 
among the years and there's a lot of professional co-drivers who can can jump in and do a very good job but there's certainly an advantage for staying with someone and building that over a longer period of time can you just tell me what break 64 right minus means <laughs> uh, so the break is a, a reference for your breaking point so that will I will use that if I'm coming for a, a very fast section or something's a bit unseen so I'm just saying on that 60 meters so 60 is a distance so break 60 so break at the start or early on in the 60 meters um, if I had the break after the 60 it would be meaning break to the latter part of the 60 meters and then the four minus is a, a corner so three is is more or less you know a, a square corner um, and then four would be a bit faster so that would be a, a fourth gear corner uh, minus is it's just a little bit tighter than a generic four. Oh, so six is a long sweeping bend yeah six is is flat out okay good <laughs> okay uh yeah i was watching one of the videos i think you with your co-driver in the ballarat stage of the ARC, yeah. perhaps and just listening to the language and trying to see on the road what the next thing coming was and it was completely hope i couldn't understand a word of it and um yeah it's, it's tricky to, uh, to follow unless along they, um, unless they say something like bridge like or... yeah yeah. yeah, so a clock face, so if you imagine um, the, the clock hands at, at 6, it's between 12 and 6, it's fairly open, um, and then you're at 3 o'clock, it's, it's a 90 degree. So very roughly that's where the, the numbers come from, those angles. Lost many co-drivers through overzealous driving and uh, in, failed to inspire confidence. Not that they've told me. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly someone's not available this weekend. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I've been lucky and I've, been able to work with very good, very experienced people. And, you know, we have that kind of relationship where we can tell each other if if we don't think the other person is doing the right thing or, you know, if the co-driver says something and I listen and, and vice versa. So, yeah, you're very much, you know, both wanting the same thing out of it. So I think that being able to listen and appreciate and understand and respect each other is paramount. So I've been very lucky to have uh, some very good co-drivers. It's actually, it's just struck me. It's a bit like the relationship between a surgeon and an anaesthetist. There's uh, has to be a huge amount of mutual trust and respect because if either one of them's not doing a good job, then uh, the, the patient's the one who suffers. And in your case, the, the car and you are the ones who suffer. Yeah, 100%. I think the only person that's probably said they don't want to be my co-driver is my dad when I take him for a run. <laughs> but you're also trying to play it up a bit and impress him. So uh, he probably gets a few wild uh, <laughs> wild stages when probably, he jumps in the car. A bit quicker than the XY probably. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, what, exactly. what what about your parents were they ever concerned about you going into rally driving or were they 100 percent you know encouraging you to follow your your dreams they've always been really supportive of and emphasizing i suppose the importance of finding what you're passionate about and then following that so even when i was was really passionate about horse riding they would would always support me in what i wanted to do and i think to be honest they were more concerned for my safety when I was horse riding because the, the statistics on horse riding are far worse than rallying. Um, but, I mean, for sure there's there's risk with everything. So that that's something that we, uh, yeah, try to mitigate as much as we can and, and we make sure we've got all the right equipment and the cars are incredibly safe and, you know, that goes with anything, anything that you do. But they understand sport. They know how much safety is involved. They know it's calculator risk what we're doing and you know they know the sport intimately and I think they're probably more nervous on the start line about you know me doing a good job because they know how much I put into it and they know what pressures involved they know what um what's on the line and they want to see see me do well so I think they're more nervous on that side of things apart from I agree with you about horses by the way having worked in you know sort of the emergency services and in and trauma and, and stuff I've certainly seen a lot more disasters from people 
coming off a horse than off pretty much anything else. Maybe motorbikes are a, a close second or the same, but certainly not from, from motorsport. doesn't seem to be a, a very frequent occurrence that cars, uh, people in, in cars in motorsport, you know, uh, have, have a very serious incident. Uh, definitely can't say the same for horses or motorcycles. Putting aside the obvious passion that you have for the sport and and doing a good job in a car at, at high speeds, what in terms of the risk itself, uh, it you know obviously there are some very obvious dangers and you've faced those in the the few times you've had serious rollovers or collisions. Uh, how do you, what what are the benefits to you? Do you think of the risk per se? Do you do you think it's good for us to do stuff like this that that's a bit edgy and a bit dangerous? Yeah, I mean, I think it's you know obviously there's there's a limit and a, a a line for for everything, and there's a lot of yeah common sense and yeah discretion that you have to use with everything. But it's I suppose it's like you know if I look at other sports, if I look at someone skydiving, I couldn't imagine to do that because I don't know how to do it and I don't know the skills and I, I don't know the risk profile. To me, it looks incredibly risky. But you know, to those guys that jump every single day it's, it's a process now and they're ticking off one step by one step and their actual risk profile is extremely low so I think there's a lot of you know that understanding developing your skill knowing your sport you know everything then yet becomes a process and you know what you're doing you know what can go wrong if something you know if one of the things isn't done correctly and and you're planning and analyzing for all of that so what might look incredibly risky if you take someone for a passenger ride on a track you've done their first time around that track might look insanely risky and you're going millimetres from trees. And But if you've done just done that 20 times and you know exactly where you need to be and what you need to do, your risk, I mean, sure, for sure, anything can happen and something can break or, or whatever, but generally, you know, you know your risk profile and, and you're mitigating everything and you're in control. So, yeah, I think it, it comes down a lot, a lot to that and your experience and uh, ability to be able to manage those situations, which might look like a huge risk to someone who isn't intimately involved with all those steps. Is there anything in rallying that does frighten you? Is there any particular scenario or, or anything that, you know, you do think about and worry about? Oh, I mean, you definitely have close calls with things that <laughs> get your heart rate up for sure. But to be honest, it's it's not really something that's going through your mind. You're just focused on, you know, the next corner, the process where you're going to break, getting the exit right, and and you're not thinking about all those things. And it's all happening so fast, you don't really have time to to look too, you know, too wide and, and sort of think about all the what-ifs. You just need to focus on your job. It's exactly, you know, like any other sport, trying to kick a goal at a penalty shootout. You're not looking around and thinking about all the other things. You just need to focus on your process and kicking that ball and where it's going to go. And it's the same thing when you're in in the bubble in that car. That's That's really all you're focused on. Just thinking about, you know, as a, as a female in very much still a male-dominated sport, a rally seems particularly, is it particularly heavily male-dominated compared to even other branches of motorsports? Yeah, we're getting quite quite a few female co-drivers and, and some more drivers, but it, it certainly is still male-dominated and, and hopefully that's beginning to change and in future generations will be even more equal, but, yeah, it's certainly still male-dominated. When I saw in one of your interviews, you made the comment that, you know, it's just down to the stopwatch and it doesn't matter what gender you are, you're either fastest or you're not fastest. And um, so it is the great equaliser um, motorsport and, um, you know, it doesn't depend on on strength, size, anything apart from reflexes, skill and, and daring, I guess, to a degree. And so there should be no gender difference. But I guess traditionally, you know, women have been less inclined to tinker with cars as, as kids and, and have that interest. So... Uh, and and maybe 
you know, you've been particularly lucky to have parents who, who showed you the opportunities and what the possibilities were. So uh, I saw a couple of comments on some of the YouTube videos, you know, and you've probably had a bit of criticism or a few people having a go at you in your role as an elite motorsport female. Do you think it's the risk taking that people, is that the reason people's eyebrows will still go up that here's a, here's a girl doing this? What, what is it that make people still show that kind of bigotry about the fact that there's a girl doing so well? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think thankfully it's a small percentage. So, I mean, overwhelmingly there's a lot of support and everyone wants to see more females do well and succeed. And the more females that do do well and succeed, the more it reinforces the, the fact that it is possible and there shouldn't be a difference, but for sure uh, you're not going to please everybody. And, and I think it's, as you say, it's that, um, you know, inclination, particularly, you know, as younger girls not tinkering with cars because they're not encouraged to, because it's not seen as something that's something that the females should do. So I think a lot of it is just a, an older mindset that that still, you know, deep down doesn't think it's, it's a place for women. Um, so I think the biggest thing that we can do is to be opening up those perceptions and changing those ideas with young kids. And I think that I'm sort of the living example of that because I grew up in a, in a completely different environment where it was completely normal for my mum to do that. And I never sort of had to, I guess, wrestle with the, the thought that, oh, but that's not what girls do. Cause I thought that's what girls did maybe more than men because my mum was doing it as a profession and um, my dad was just doing it as a hobby. So I never had to sort of overcome that barrier. And it's only then when you're involved and people ask you about them, you sort of sit back and think, Oh, wait a minute, this isn't, you know, this isn't necessarily every normal upbringing that people are exposed to. So yeah, I think it, it's, switching that mindset is is really important. Can you think of any standout moments when being a female drew unwanted attention or, or negativity uh, in the course of your career? Uh, I think there's there's always some, there's all there has been some, you know, comments about, uh, you know, not wanting to get beaten by a girl and you got beaten by a girl and, and that sort of thing. Uh, but to be honest, I think as, especially as you go up the levels in motorsport, the, the respect amongst the drivers is there no matter your if you're male or female and whatever, if you're out there on the stages doing the times, everyone in the cars knows what's involved to to do that and no one really cares uh, what gender you are. I think it's, yeah, it's more when you're going up the ranks and everyone's trying to prove themselves and there's maybe a bit more younger egos out there or there's people on the outside of the sport who have their own opinions. But within the motorsport community, particularly at the professional level, everyone's professional. And if you're professional, you're one of one of the others or one of the boys or just, you know, everyone gets on with the job and, and uh, yeah, definitely um, it's nice to see more and more of that happening. And there seems to be a, a, quite a move from Motorsport Australia, for example, to encourage women into motorsport at the moment, isn't there? Are you involved in that at yeah. all? Yeah, certainly. So the Girls on Track program that I'm involved with uh, is essentially going out to girls anywhere between 8 and 18 to schools or having them come to workshops uh, come to the track and just experience all the different elements and jobs and opportunities in motorsport. So the driving, but also from the engineering, mechanics, uh, logistics, media, you know, all, all the facets. And the, the idea is, as we spoke about, just to show females that there are females in these roles doing well. It is a, it is an option for them and the, the doors are open. And I think we're seeing some 
you know, fantastic results from that, just these girls that have never been exposed to motorsport before and wouldn't have without this program, suddenly realising how cool it is and what we all know and what we all love about it and to be able to share that with more people in a really open environment is, is yeah, it's amazing. Well, you can talk the talk, but in 2016, you actually walked the walk when you won the Australian Rally Championship. Tell us about that last stage and that moment when uh, you were crowned with that uh, with that title. Yeah, it was a bit surreal, actually, because, I mean, obviously it was always our, our target and, and wanting to, to win a championship, but I didn't think it would come in our first year with Subaru. And to be honest, it was really, um, we didn't have, we weren't running a, I guess, a car that was, was the outright fastest. We're running a fairly standard specification. So we were just trying to be consistent every race. So it was never really on the target to win. We thought a top five would be great. And and then through, yeah, through attrition and yeah, we were able to, in the end, come out on top through consistency, which, you know, isn't, I guess the, um, you know, we'd all want to be the, the first over the finish line and, and take the title. And, and we came very close the following year with a, with a big lead in the championship and then suffered a mechanical issue and, and, didn't finish the championship. Um, so I guess that's the way motorsport goes and it's a, you know, lesson in consistency and, you know, the points win, win championships, not necessarily race wins. So yeah, it was all a bit surprising actually, because of coming into that event, you know, we were a really outside chance for the championship and we didn't really think it was possible. And unfortunately it was, you know, due to mistakes and issues that other people had. So yeah, it was an interesting dynamic, but still in the end of the day, it was the championship and um, we finished with the most points and, uh, yeah, it was it was a great. I took a lot away from from that experience in in terms of you know how to yeah focus on consistency and, and focus on the big picture as well as as trying to win win rallies. And Bill Hayes was your co-driver, I think. For that, is he an experienced guy, like been around forever and and help mentor you in a way for that, or or was he kind of similar age and experience to you? No, Bill um, has been around for quite a while. He'll, he'll listen to this and get, and get angry at me for calling him old. He's not old, but he's um, he's very experienced. He's co-driven for the Subaru factory team back uh, when, you know, the 10 years prior to when I jumped in with Subaru when they were winning the championships back then. And he's also co-driven for Alistair McRae, uh, the late Colin McRae's brother. So he's he was very experienced and it was great for me to be uh, stepping into that environment as a, a factory team and all the pressure that goes along with that to have someone who'd been there before um, that could help help guide me through it. The year before when you won that uh, one of the stages or the heats in the Australian Rally Championship, um, you were awarded the Peter Brock Medal uh, for kind of being an all-rounder, good sports person and also helping promote the sport and, and so forth. Did you ever meet, meet Peter Brock? Yes, I did. I didn't spend a lot of time with him, but, uh, uh, yeah, through, uh, through Mum and, and Neil, who she co-drove for, I had the opportunity to meet him a few times and... Um, yeah, that was pretty surreal. And yeah, I think that's still, yeah, it's still an incredible moment and something that took me by surprise <laughs> a lot. And, and to be able to uh, yeah, be recognised with that medal and also the other drivers that have been or recognised before me at that point was, uh, yeah, I was definitely pinching myself that night. Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking that must have been a particularly special uh, moment having that award. And and uh, I was hoping you'd say you'd, you'd met Peter. Obviously, you know, growing up as a boy, he was one of the, the guys I was just always watching at, at Bathurst. And I think he's just been a hero to so many young Australians and, and older ones, including myself now. So was that one of the more special moments in your career to date? Yeah, I was quite young uh, the last time I remember, but I definitely, I have a, 
a very clear memory in a actually in an underground car park in Tasmania during one of the Tiger Tasmanias that uh, Mum and I were competing at, and and Peter was as well. And I remember, uh, yeah, just walking through the car park, he was walking past and um, shook his hand. So I remember as a, you know, a young girl too, uh, he was so um, approachable to everyone and came in and shook my hand and we said hello. And then uh, I remember Mum telling me later at a later date that uh, they were speaking and he, he commented on what lovely children she had. And I remember being very proud that he made a comment like that to Mum. Yeah, well, I can tell you as a parent, that's exactly what you want to hear as a parent. It doesn't happen often enough. That's it's great. So what happened after the, the championship? Did things really change for you? Did some people come knocking or what was it like? Yeah, there was definitely, um, I think it was really good for the profile of rallying uh, to, to get some more mainstream media coverage and yeah, promote our sport. So it was great for Subaru as well for us to be back after a hiatus of, of them being out of the championship in a factory capacity to come back in and come back in with a win was was fantastic. So it gave us a lot more momentum uh, going forward. And, and as I said, the, the next year was was a really good year for us performance-wise. And, yeah, we thought we were going to go back-to-back. Back and um, I guess that's the, the cruel thing of the sport. You never know uh, when it's going to go your way or not. So learn a lot of lessons both, on the both sides of the fence. But yeah, it gave us a lot of momentum and a lot of confidence um, for me and also as a team. So you had a couple of bit tougher years after that with some crashes and not uh, doing as well as, as you hoped. Um, Coffs Harbour and then, of course, the, the bushfires and then the COVID. Yeah, yeah. So it was, it was a tough, I guess, exit for that for that program. Not um, yeah, obviously not going as well as we we hoped. But I, you know, I think that's the thing about motorsport. It's it's very unpredictable, and you're living on the edge. So. Uh, you know, you take the wins when you can get them and you appreciate just how hard it is to put everything together to be in that position because you know, that's what everyone's trying to do and only one person can win. So, you know, there's a lot of heartache and heartbreaking stories for every success story, more heartbreaking stories than, than uh, the successful ones. The, it's just the high of those successful ones keeps you going for a bit longer. Well, I can tell you from my brief experience, the uh, the lows have definitely outweighed the, the highs with the amount of time yeah. with the car off the road and broken engines and clutches. And, you know, when you first get a car and you start sort of trying to work on it, just everything is hopeless and breaks. And uh, it's taken me a full, full year to kind of complete a weekend of racing. So, uh, I, of course, notwithstanding the, you know, the <laughs> massive success I've had, um, I'm looking forward to next year, hopefully being having a bit more of a reliable car. So I can't imagine you know, the stress and strain you put on your vehicles, you know, what it takes to have a a competitive and reliable car out on the track for a full season. You know, I'm sort of just starting to get a a tiny sense of the effort that's involved in that. So it must be nice to have a team around you rather than you and a mate with a toolbox full of spanners like I'm. That's my level at the moment, you know, hoping to kind of keep the thing going. Um, Yeah, I mean, that's where we all start and that's, I guess, where you, you learn... Uh, the the graft and and develop the the passion for it all and then you know the highs the highs are, are so high and the lows are so lows and it's really the sport of all extremes but as you say it's really a team sport um so to to have a group of people that are working as hard as you and are invested as hard as you and you know how many different areas and elements you have to get right and put together to win so i think that's also makes it such a more incredible feeling when it does go well because it's not just you know, you've put in your training and you, you've done a good job. Everyone's done that and everyone's done that together. And that's very special to share with more people rather than just yourself. So that's one of the things that, that I love about the sport. 
Now, can you, just as, as we finish up a bit, can you tell me about this year? Because I've had a lot of trouble sort of working out where on earth is Molly Taylor this week. And your passport, <laughs> too, must, be, your passport must be looking like, um, you know, it's a bit bruised and battered. Tell, tell us what yeah. you've been up to. Yeah, I sound really dodgy when I go through customs because they ask me where I've been and where I'm going and I have to sit there and <laughs> bring out my phone and look at my calendar <laughs> and check what's happening. Um, it's been pretty crazy. But, uh, yeah, so I've been competing in the, the brand new Extreme E-Series, which is... Yeah, as I said, all, all new. Uh, it's just started this year and it's an all-electric championship. We run with electric SUVs in different remote locations all over the world. And it, it's kind of like off-road slash rallycross. So we race head-to-head with other other vehicles on these these tracks that have been set up in these locations. So they're, they're not a, a set track exactly. We, we kind of make them up through the terrain that we're on. And it's to, as well as racing, it's to highlight climate change um, so we go to these areas that have been affected by climate change. We've been um, to the glaciers in Greenland and we've been to to Africa and Saudi Arabia and the island Sardinia in, in Italy. So all these locations to um, yeah, promote sustainable motorsport and and to use the the platform to try and help spread the awareness of what we can what we can do and how we can use sport to also tackle climate change. So it's a pretty cool program to be a part of. And through that, going over to Europe and then with the COVID situation especially with the borders back in Australia I've, I've basically spent the last six months with a suitcase traveling yeah through Europe to these events and and through that as well being able to add on some other other rallies and do a few rounds of the world rally championship um, with M Sport the team I ran with the juniors back in 2011 um, and also do some off-road events as well which has been uh, pretty cool. So with the world rally championship that's rally three uh, you've been driving in is that correct? Yes. And Estonia and the Acropolis Greek Greek Rally, yes. are they the two you went to. And so, Finland. so oh, in Finland as well, right? So, they, you can just sort of duck in and out of those, can you? They must uh, think very highly of you just to let you pop in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a great. I had a a great program and some great supporters um, who are also partners of the World Championship and the Rally Three car you mentioned that we drove is a, a brand new car that had just been developed and it will run as the junior category for next year. So these events were really about showcasing the car. Um, and getting some miles and getting the car out there. So it was a great opportunity, a win-win. I was around and these events were on the table. So it was, yeah, it was a pretty cool opportunity to be able to to combine it all and, and get some some World Rally Championship events back in because it uh, yeah, had been a while since I'd been able to to compete over there. I think I heard you say that you had a poster of the Acropolis Rally in your home when you were a kid and uh, to go there was pretty special. But isn't Finland the kind of the one? It's like the, I don't know. Yeah, Finland's the necker. It's the, you know, it's the Monaco of um, rallying. It's uh, it's the the one event I think every driver wants to win. Rallying is almost the national sport over in Finland. So the, the atmosphere and the roads are just, the roads are just unlike anything else you'll see anywhere. They're just the the, the way that they're built. It, it's kind of like a roller coaster with these incredible jumps. Yeah, it's just... It's unreal. It's very hard to describe, but it, it takes your breath away for sure. This, this year, I've made the big mistake of getting a KO subscription, which means I'm now watching World Rally Championship, MotoGP, Formula One, and uh, my Brilliant. wife, my wife and kids are like, "Would you turn that down the whole time?" I just, uh, I can't <laughs> get enough of it. And the characters in the World Rally Championship, I, yeah, I really recommend it. It's great viewing, and uh, you know, from Wales and uh, all, all the Scandinavian drivers, and you know, I'm just waiting to see you up in the in the rally one driving is that is that the ultimate goal for you do you think or what what's next for molly if you could uh, have your wish yeah 
I mean, yeah, as a rally driver to compete at the top of the WRC is always the pinnacle. I think it's, you know, it's a very long road to get there that not many people get to achieve. So certainly would would like to go as high up as I can and yeah, would never say no to that opportunity. But it's, yeah, there's a lot. It's a bit like trying to get to Formula One. There's a, there's a lot of a lot of steps and a lot of resources that are needed to, to get to that point. Uh, yeah, and also I've just been doing some, some more off-roading stuff this year as well, which is a discipline I really hadn't had much involvement in and I'm really enjoying that as well. So it's been a really cool year to be doing rallying, but also these other types of motorsport as well and, and really diversify. So I think there's, yeah, there's a lot of opportunities, but it's really hit home, you know, how much, you know, you can try to, to plan your career as perfectly as you can, but really you've got to be there and got to make the most of every opportunity and take everything that comes your way and run with it and, and see where it leads you. And I couldn't have predicted last year a year like this would have ever existed. So I'm kind of excited to see, you know, I don't know what will happen next year, but I'm going to be there and try everything as hard as I can and, and see what happens. Well, you're currently leading the Extreme E series, I believe, with uh, Johan Christofferson. Is that finished? Have you won that or you still got a battle we to go? We have one more round to go. Okay. But you're in a you're in a good spot, I gather. Yeah, yeah, we have um, we have the lead, so it's between us and one other team. So yeah, the fight's definitely still on. So we, we can't we can't relax. We're in a good position, um, but you know anything can happen at these events. They're so unpredictable, which is what makes it exciting. But, but yeah, it's a challenge as well. So uh, that's that's our goal to win, and that's what we're going to try and go and do. But yeah, we just got to keep our heads down and and keep focused on the task at hand. And there's a little bit of cool factor hanging around there i gather because there's a lot of formula one uh, ex-formula one drivers it's jensen button and uh rossbergs of course who you race with and so you're hanging out with some you know pretty good friends yeah it, it's incredible the drivers that and, and the personnel that extreme me have put together for this series so we have uh, from the rally side you know carlos saint sebastian loeb and you know, my idol growing up and um, from the Formula One side, as you say, Lewis Hamilton has a team. Uh, my boss is Nico Rosberg, and he's coming to all the events, so that's pretty cool. Jensen Button has another team. Um, and, and in Greenland, I was, you know, on the start line, and next to me on the start line was Sebastian Loeb, who's been my idol growing up, so I could have never imagined there would be any kind of reality where I'd be lining up in a final side-by-side -side with Sebastian Loeb. So, yeah, it's, it is like going into another world. Yeah, well, a bit of networking is never never bad for business you never know where it can lead the the other thing i've noticed is you've got a bit of a media career going as well which no doubt has sprung from some of these opportunities and um, you can obviously string a sentence together and you're in the pit lanes at the supercars sometimes i think and doing some other stuff including the sas australia that i just wanted to ask you about in, in finishing because again i've only just sort of gotten onto sas this year and have watched a couple of the australian events and i've, been, I've actually been horrified how hard and horrible it is is it as yeah. horrible as it looks on tv oh it's worse <laughs> it's worse than it looks it's it was the most brutal thing i've i've ever done yeah it was really really hard to kind of put into words just how brutal it was but much i mean what you see on tv is brutal but there's no you know when that task is over or, or whatever it, it doesn't end <laughs> you know to to those tasks you're hiking to and from all those tasks you're you know, in these army trucks driving to those uh, tasks. And when we did it, it was in the middle of winter in Jindabyne when they had um, a cold snap and blizzards and all sorts of things coming through. So you're literally shivering 
during the night with the wind coming through the the room where we were staying in the morning in the cars, going through all those tasks, jumping in water, I think every day by one or two, you were cold and hungry all the time. And then you're doing all those tasks on top of everything else. So it was, yeah, the most demanding thing for sure that I've ever had to do. But yeah, such an amazing experience to to be able to put yourself through that and really learn a lot about about yourself and then put everything after that into perspective. It must be, I mean, you go in there and you think, well, this is just a game. So, you know, how bad can it be? But then they start screaming, yelling at you from the from the word go and, and you're immersed in it. I guess it becomes your reality for that couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, after the first day, you don't even know there's cameras mm. there because you're just trying to survive. And I think that's the great thing about the show is it's so real and there's no producers, there's no cuts. The, the DS are running the, the show and, and they're running the selection as if they would you know, in the real deal. Um, and yeah, if the camera guys miss something too bad, it, it's not, we're not pandering or doing anything for them. They're, they're doing their thing and they're giving us the most real and genuine authentic experience of that selection and trying to get the most out of us. And, and, you know, the camera guys are just along for the ride. So it's, um yeah, everything you see is, is as real as it gets. And there's a whole lot more that uh, I guess is on the, the chopping room floor. Well, I know you're someone who takes their fitness very seriously and you're obviously a very, very driven, focused person. So did you learn something new about yourself in that experience? Yeah, I learned a huge amount uh, physically and mentally. I think, you know, some of those physical tasks, you're really, you know, you're at the point where you don't think you can take another step. And then you're staying at that point for an hour or more for hours. And so it's incredible to to really learn what your limits actually are if you're put in that scenario and you have to do more you know you can um so learning those things of what you would have thought up until that point the limit is or going past a limit and then the, the amount you go past that again is just yeah it's incredible i don't think it's something you want to do every day but uh, it's yeah it's very empowering to know just what you you can do if you if you have to well it's a couple of years of pretty amazing experiences you've you've had molly and have you got any uh uh, tips for what might be happening yes, next year or not ready to announce uh, anything? Your uh, your your uh, <laughs> colleague alluded to the fact there was something in the offing, but I didn't know whether it was yeah, something you Yeah, yeah, there yet. is um, lots, of, lots of things in the pipeline and the announcements aren't far away. So, uh, yeah, very, not yet, but very soon we'll be able to talk about it. <laughs> All right, well, I'll keep my ears peeled and uh, I'm sure whatever you're doing next year, I'll be, I'll be watching and uh, good luck. I hope uh, you, sure you, you, you crash less and win more. Uh, than the <laughs> always the plan. <laughs> uh, but yeah, can't wait to see that you've won the Extreme E Series with Johan and the Rosberg team, and I hope you have a, a, a great year next year. And it's been awesome to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks very much. Hi, I'm Molly Taylor, rally driver and Extreme E driver, and I hope you enjoyed my chat with Harry here on the Rules Podcast. Well, that's the show for today. Thanks for joining me. If you want any more information, you can check out the podcast website at realriskpodcast.com. dot